Hello, everyone, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I look into whatever the most intriguing topic of, you know, the two weeks. And then, you know, I teach it to you because it's just so interesting. You have to share. That's right. Uh, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. So this episode, I really wanted to talk about Archimedes. Of course, Um, as everyone does. And that grew out of reading a small piece on Archimedes and the defense of Syracuse, which will be a large portion of this episode. Um, But also, it's very, very intriguing. Kind of everything about Archimedes is kind of shrouded in mystery and myth and lies and Hmm. (laughs) exaggerations. and good drama. um, Yes, really. It's very cool, actually, when you start to dive into it, how little we know and now how much we know. Um, it's very recent. Uh, so I, I would love to just like dive, dive right into to Archimedes. Perfect. Well, teach me something. Perfect. So um, as I kind of alluded to, we don't know a lot about certain parts of Archimedes, uh, namely his actual life. But then um, we did. Like you pointed out a few moments ago. Yeah, but that part was more about his work. Got it. So his life is just, is a pretty big question mark. Okay. Um, We think he was born in 287 BCE in Syracuse. Okay. Uh, That's approximate though. We know his father, Phidias, was an astronomer and that Phidias helped Archimedes develop an interest in science at a pretty young age. Um. That's about it. <laughs> That's his childhood. Okay, background so, solidified. Uh, he likely travels to Egypt as a young man and studies in Alexandria with all the most famous minds and brilliant thinkers. And he returns then to Syracuse. We don't know if he had a wife or kids. Um, the Greek historian Plutarch wrote that Archimedes was related to Hero II, who was the king of Syracuse, but... That's the only source that says that, so who knows? Okay. Um, the standard versions of Archimedes' life weren't written until um, long after he died, so we just really don't know how accurate they were. Like the earliest reference to Archimedes um, was in something called the Histories, which is by a Roman historian, Polybius. Okay. Um, and Polybius was writing kind of like mid, like kind of one fifty BCE. And as you're going to find out, that's the earliest that we have 70 years after Archimedes' death, though. Um, so who knows? And still, that doesn't really mention much about his life. That's mostly about all the, the war machines that he made to defend Syracuse. Sure. Which we will get to later, yes. Um, so what do we know? We know he pretty much lived his life, whole entire life in Syracuse. He, um, Syracuse being the main Greek city-state in Sicily. You'll talk about talk about it later. I'll say a lot. <laughs> We're going to talk okay. about that later as well. Um, he was really close with the king, Hero II, as I said. Um, and later in life, Archimedes became an engineer for Hero II. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Okay. Uh, shrouded in mystery, as I said. Yeah. Man of Facts mystery. are told. Um, but he had a lot of inventions and ideas. Um, he's thought of as one of the fathers of math and science, like just one of the most important figures, at least now that we know what he did. Okay. Um, he was really innovative in 
what I didn't realize in math, just like in mathematics in general, it wasn't just a little bit of physics. It wasn't just anyways, mechanical engineering was uh, something he was really known for mathematics, some physics, that kind of thing. Um, so according to Plutarch, who he wrote um, in like 100 CE, so again, like 300 years maybe now after Archimedes has died, um, quote, Archimedes had so low an opinion of the kind of practical invention at which he excelled and to which he owed his contemporary fame that he left no written work on such subjects. So wow. take that with a grain of salt, but yeah. We, we don't have records of him, like, um, describing these machines he built, drawings of them, blueprints, uh, notes about his, like, his process inventing them. Like, he just didn't write it down. Like, yeah, he made a lot of war machines, that's pretty certain, but meh. To him, that was, like, lowly. Right. Doing this to defend the city, but, like, this isn't an intellectual pursuit. He didn't leave, you know, instructions for more to be made. Like, we don't have any of that. Okay. Um, in evidence, and that sucks. Um, so his his known works are actually kind of all of the theoretical things, very theoretical and concepts, mathematical and, and, and abstract, astronomical, some astronomical stuff that was a little bit data driven, but um, in general, yeah, he he really was very philosophical in his thinking. Okay, as were many of the Greeks, though. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but a lot of people that know what they're talking about, which is not me in mechanical engineering, <laughs> say it's obvious that um, the interest in mechanics have really influenced his mathematical theories. Um, and that he, like, he wrote uh, works on theoretical mechanics and hydrostatics. And he oh, did cool. a, you know, a treatise method concerning mechanical theorems, which is uh, going to turn out to be one of his most important works um, that, where he used mechanical reasoning as a heuristic device. So like, you know, to ask questions, how to solve the, you know, new mathematical theorems. Anyways, he structured his mathematics in a mechanical way, if that makes sense. Um, so he wrote nine treatises. Treatises? Treatises? I, I don't know what the proper plural of, anyways, wording of um, that is. That survived. Nine of them survived. Okay. The most widely known, I would say, um is the on float well on floating bodies itself of course is not widely known i certainly did not know it before i was researching this but as part of on floating bodies that this treatise um is the archimedes principle okay and it's most widely known because of the very widely known anecdote that leads to it which is you know archimedes and the crown and the bathtub story um so according to vitruvius a crown had been made for King Hero II of Syracuse, right. who who had supplied the, the pure gold to be used to the crown maker. Yep. And he asked Archimedes to make sure that it was pure gold and, and that the dishonest goldsmith hadn't substituted some silver in there and kept him some of the gold for himself. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, the legend goes... Um, Archimedes was taking a bath and he noticed that the level of the water in the tub rose as he got in and out and he realized he could use this to determine the volume of the crown and then, you know, solve for density. And, you know, as it goes, then he leaps naked out of the tub, 
running into the street so excited he forgets to even get dressed and starts yelling Eureka, which is actually spelled with an H. Oh, really? In Greek, Eureka. Oh. Anyways, meaning I have found it, you know. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so that's the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, most very sure it's a story. It's not a. It's I mean, not I've a heard the story thing. before, but yeah. never with the H. So. Um, oh, so this is brand new information. This is brand new information for me, yeah. 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 So, this is not like super far fetched. Uh, the theory is that this did happen, like the crown. The crown thing happened. Um, he determined the proportion of gold and silver in a crown made for Hero the Second by using water. Like that's all probably true. Okay. But um, the version that has him leaping from the bath and running naked through the streets shouting is probably an embellishment. Darn. Shockingly. Okay. Um, so the practicality of, of this method that, that people say Archimedes would have used uh, is not, it's just not going to work is what people think. Because you would have to be really, really precise to measure how much water is displaced. Yeah. And, and that method just would not be accurate enough is the thought. So instead, they, this scenario happened, and the thinking is that Archimedes may have used Archimedes' principle to figure this out, which he describes in On Floating Bodies. Um, so this principle, which, you know, Archimedes was the one to think of if the name did not make that clear to you. Right, I um, got it. Says that a body immersed in a fluid experiences a buoyant force, so upwards force, equal to the weight of the fluid it displaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on floating bodies, the whole treatise is the first description of how objects behave when floating in water. So how did he really do it? Well, we think he would compare the density of the crown to pure gold by having a scale, mm-hmm. putting the crown on one side and having a pure gold reference sample for the other side and slowly balance it till it's exactly equal weight of pure gold yep. and the, and the crown yep. and then immersing that balanced scale into water. Mm-hmm. And if one floated, they were a duck <laughs> and therefore a witch. And which is steel gold or don't steal gold. I think they steal gold. Oh, yeah. I mean, they weren't very clear in Monty Python, but they didn't it's... say that part. I know, it was part of the deleted scenes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, if you were unclear about what happens next in this test, the Mm. density difference would cause one side to tip. Yeah, correct. If the crown was not pure gold, and it was something, let's say, denser, Mm -hmm. then that crown side would go lower in the water, even though it was balanced by weight. weight. Yeah, the density now is not the same. Yeah. Yes. Um, which I'm pretty sure silver is more dense than gold. I would assume so, yes. Gold Due is, to the gold, gold being able to be dented light, quite it? easily. Anyways. Yeah. Here's the thing. Gal- Galileo. It, yes, we all know who Galileo is. We do. Um, in 1586, he invented a hydrostatic balance for weighing metals in air and water, inspired, he said, by the work of Archimedes. Okay. And he said... It's, quote, probable that this method is the same that Archimedes followed since, besides being very accurate, it is based on demonstrations found by Archimedes himself. And so if Galileo thinks that this is how Archimedes did the crown thing and not the bathtub Eureka story, then I'm going to go with that. Oh, well, did Galileo at least run down the street naked, shrieking? Eureka? Yeah. 
I don't think so. That's not very oh, Italian. Well, this is or Latin. No. Very unexciting now. Suddenly. No. Okay. Um. Well, we're in the math section, so yeah, maybe you're just it's just an unexciting section. It'll get not typically different. It'll change okay. if this isn't your jam, but. We're going to talk about geometry because oh, Archimedes did love him some geometry, especially of spheres, you know, circles, cylinders, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wrote a treatise called On the Sphere and Cylinder. Good. And he tells us the surface area of a sphere with radius R is 4 pi R squared. Very he good. He found the volume of a sphere is two thirds the volume of the cylinder that encloses it. And uh, apparently he just really loved spheres and cylinders. He, he he asked for a sculpture of a sil- like a sphere in a cylinder for his tomb actually. Really? When he when he died, yeah. And um, he was also in this treatise um, known for having calculated pi to really really precise levels for that day and age. So okay. he showed he used regular polygons in smaller and smaller amounts in yeah. a kind of way called an indivisible. Method of exhaustion. Anyways, something very okay. similar to calculus. I was going to say way. that sounds. Yes, Archimedes, two twelve. Well, no, this would have been like more like two forty BC inventing calculus. Anyways, he got down to that pi was somewhere between three and ten seventy, ten seventy one. How do you? I don't know how you say fractions. Ten seventy. Like one thousand seventieth is what you're getting at. <laughs> Three and ten out of seventy-one. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. Three ten point... seventy-firsts, fifths, whatever. Yeah, yeah. three point one four zero eight five. That's pretty good. And three and one seventh, which is three point one four two eight six. So he got pi down. Pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Um, very impressive. And then you know more mathematics. You know he talks about. Um, finding the area or calculating the area under a parabola again with this method of exhaustion. It sounds a lot like um, calculus. <laughs> he, he was able to calculate areas that were considered impossible to calculate before mm-hmm. him. Yeah, exactly. And it was a very long time ago. So, yeah. um, Archimedes is pretty, pretty smart. So there's something called the Archimedean property. And I looked at it. And here's what I'm going to tell you about it is okay. that it's super complicated. And I could not possibly explain it to you. I mean, or understand it myself, but explain it to you at all. Um, it's from a very complicated sounding field called abstract algebra analysis. Okay. Well, so explain abstract, to me that. Um, no, I, I literally am not going no. to attempt it. There's I'll see, like I'll hyper, try to see if I could trick you into real it. numbers and some crazy things I've never heard of. Okay. Um, but I just wanted to, you know, that, and then he did a lot of work on um, infinite series. Mm. And so I... The only reason I'm telling you all of this is because I feel like that really captures the kind of mind that Archimedes must have had. Right. Um, these topics are so, um, so abstract, so theoretical, so philosophical, and just very, obviously very smart, but like sure. innovative, like he's like a pure kind of thinker, a pure mathematical thinker. Yeah. Um, really on the theoretical side of mathematics. Yeah, I'm really cool. Don't get it, but really cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, in a treatise called The Sand Reckoner, which is cool, which is his mm. only surviving writings on astronomy, maybe the only writings he did on astronomy, Who knows? Um, he sets out to calculate the number of grains of sand in the universe. Or, well, that the okay. universe that the universe could contain. Oh, okay. You know, the kind of weird philosophy stuff that the, the Greeks, I think, were sure. um, pretty known for. Um, so 
the notion at the time was that the number of grains of sand was too large to ever be counted. Of course. And so he wanted to challenge that. Mm-hmm. Um, counterculture. So to solve the problem, he devised this system of counting because you have to remember when we did our history of maths episode that there wasn't big numbers. Like there was no, no. way to just keep making numbers bigger and bigger and bigger with the counting systems that people used to employ. It got very cumbersome very um, quickly. Right. So um, he devised a counting system based on the myriad. Oh. So myriad is a word that derives from the Greek myrius, which is the number 10,000. Mm-hmm. So a myriad is actually the Latin number for 10,000. Makes sense. Um, so now that we use that word myriad to just mean like lots, it actually technically means in 10,000. Okay. Um, so he proposed number system where you use powers of a myriad of myriads. So 10,000 times 10,000, which is, you know, 100 million. Mm-hmm. And he concluded the number of grains of sand required to fill the universe would be eight vigintillion. I'm not familiar with that number. What? You don't know how much a vigintillion is? Not eight of them. You plebe. <laughs> so. Maybe just one, but that's eight times that's as much. too far. Okay. Um, that is eight times ten to the 63rd power. Only they didn't have Wait, that notation back then. That's pretty close to Avogadro's number. Six Avogadro's? No, that Avogadro's. was six times ten to the twenty-three. Is that to the six? Well, you can ignore me. No, I, I honestly don't remember now. Thirty-two? Maybe thirty-two. Yeah. Um, but anyways, as I said, Sand Reckoner, Archimedes' only foray into astronomy. He talks about astro- astronomical measurements of the Earth and the Sun and the Moon. He talks about Aristarchus's heliocentric model of the universe. Um, he was the first known Greek to have accurately recorded multiple, like, solstice dates and times in successive years. Um, the Sand Reckoner discusses one of Archimedes' inventions, okay. which is cool, because, like I said, that doesn't Mostly happen doesn't, much, yeah. um, called the Antikythera Mechanism, which sounds intense. It does. And it allowed people to predict the dates and hours of eclipses. Oh, cool. Was that from Tomb Raider? Is that why I know it? Maybe. With the first Tomb Raider when he's, like, talking about the planets aligning and... Yeah. I don't know. The Antikythera mechanism sounds... Yeah, where he's in that room with the water and the globe spinning. When I was trying and... to research it, it seems like it's almost a general category of machine. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, just that maybe, like, he invented the first one or just invented one. Anyways, um, parts of his Antikythera mechanism are actually on display at the National Archaeological Museum in Athens, if you ever go to Athens, and okay. that would be cool. Um... And they actually found it in 1902. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. And it really, really surprised everyone at the time, archaeologists, everyone, because they really just thought that that was more advanced technology than the ancient Greeks would have had. Yeah, how would they have told? So it was shockingly, like... When it's 2,000 years later, how do they tell that it's actually from Archimedes? Like, that seems improbable. Um, I don't know, because they read the Sand Reckoner? I don't know. Because he signed his name to it or something. Uh, yeah, you know, like all old Greek guys did. Yeah. He wrote, Archimedes was here. <laughs> yeah, with a Z on the end of was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Got it. You got me. So, um, as I said, he's also quite the mechanical engineer. Right. Um, he's apparently recognized as the father of static mecha- mechanics. Um, static mechanics Meaning as a stationary. To, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. Maybe you can say some more and it'll make more sense to me, but that sounds good. Like, 
levers and pulleys and screws and things that don't go broom. <laughs> How did you know I was trying really hard not to say that word? Because when you say things that go, the the the, the answer really is just broom. Okay, okay. Well, I'm just gonna keep talking. Okay. Um, I don't know what static mechanics are. Okay. There's enough things I had to look up in this episode. We just don't have time. Sure. That's fine. Keep going. So this is another maybe apocryphal thing, but it seems m- more likely to be true than some of the others. Sure. Um, due to certain evidence. Um, so it said that Archimedes invented the Archimedes screw. Okay. Um, probably while he was still living in Egypt. And so the device uses a screw enclosed in a pipe. Which, to me, spirals and cylinders, which he talks about in his earlier geometry. So this makes sense. Right. Um, And it's used to raise water from one level to another level. Right. And the stories say that Archimedes created it in order to help people lift the water from the river. Okay. That makes sense. But pretty cool. I didn't know this was called, but I definitely know what that mechanism... Well, it is called an Archimedes screw. Yeah. It's cool. That doesn't necessarily mean Archimedes did invent it. Oh. But Trixie, who knows? We're going to say he did. Okay. Um. So another of Archimedes' treaties was on the equilibrium of planes, and it discovered or discussed uh, levers and centers of gravity, especially. And he even wrote a mathematical proof of like the principle behind levers, like proved mathematically why levers work. Okay. Kind of thing, which sounds cool. Um, he's also credited with being like the first to investigate machines that use traction. And so the big example of that is a pulley, mm-hmm. is a traction machine. It's not the only one. He had a few other ones. Um, anyways, pulleys would have helped the ancient Greeks uh, lift heavier objects, obviously. So Plutarch describes how Archimedes designed block and tackle pulley systems. And I looked that up, and that pretty much just seems to me to be a system where you use multiple pulleys together. Correct, yeah. Um, so Plutarch says Archimedes designed them to help sailors lift heavy things off their ships and onto their ships, which of course would have been very practical and useful. Um, definitely so would have been a very helpful invention for everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Shipping goods and things back and forth like that would increase trade drastically. Yeah. So, um, maybe that's what static mechanics are. I don't know. Simple machines. Could be. That's my guess. But I want to talk about the siege of Syracuse now. Okay. I want you to. But, like, briefly, I I wanted to find out about Syracuse because before I find out, like, what happened when it was attacked, I kind of want to know where it is and what it did and all that. Okay. You know, background. So it was, as I said, kind of the chief Greek city uh, in ancient Sicily. It was on this, it's on the southeast coast of Sicily. Okay. Um, Syracuse was settled 734 BCE by the Corinthians. And they kind of had, you know, the original Greek settlers formed this elite class, and then the Sicil natives were oppressed and had to work the land and all that stuff. And Shocking. Then over time, there was uprisings and tyrants and different switching hands. But like through it all, uh, Syracuse is a very powerful, a very okay. powerful place. Um, Sicily itself was taken from Carthage by the Romans during the First Punic War, right. um, which ended in 241 BCE. Um, and it was so it was the first province of the Roman Republic that wasn't directly part of Italy, like on the mainland. Got Sicily it. Sicily was their first foray out of their, I mean, it makes sense. their mainland. Geog- geographically. Right. 
And then, but the kingdom of Syracuse was this allied independent region. Oh, okay. Because it was, like I said, it was a Greek city state. Mm -hmm. It did, at this point, was allied with Rome. Okay. Um, King Hero II, though, is in power. So he is a close ally of Rome. Um, so Syracuse itself, thanks to all that stuff I said, all their kind of battles in history and, you know, strong kings, also tyrannical kings, they, they've actually become um, one of, if not the most, be like, best fortified city in Greece or the Greek Empire, yeah. um, best, you know, naval fleet in the Mediterranean, like, just, you know, very, very um, powerful. Fortified, like, yeah. Exactly. Well defensed. Um, but, you know... The infighting, the Carthage versus Rome infighting sure. in Syracuse was starting to take a toll. Um, there's very strong pro-Carthage and pro-Rome factions, and uh, they didn't see eye to eye on anything. Um, and then in 215 BC, Hero II dies. Hmm. And That's his, not good for stability. No. And his 15-year-old grandson, Oof. Hieronymus, is going to come into power and immediately start negotiating with Hannibal. Not like with a regency or a regent or something in place. Yeah, just 15. 15. Yeah, I guess he's grown man at that point at that time in life. So, yeah. So he starts negotiations with Hannibal. And yes, that Hannibal, the Carthaginian general who rode elephants across the Alps to get at the Romans. Yeah. And this alarmed the pro-Roman faction in Syracuse. So uh, in 214 BCE... Hieronymus goes to visit a neighboring Greek city of Leontini, and they have him assassinated there. Okay. Yeah, his 13th month, 13 month long reign is over. Um, this leads to kind of a bit of a civil war between the Carthage and Roman factions within Syracuse. Yeah. Um, most of Hero's family is actually killed during this civil war. Um, and then the pro- Carthaginian faction is eventually successful and Hippocrates and Epihedes and not that Hippocrates, a different one, hmm. um, two brothers take over the reign. And that's kind of where we are. Meh. Rome decides to make an example out of them. Can't side with Hannibal. Sells its fleet out to blockade Syracuse. Um, there was some diplomatic efforts, but then war breaks out officially between the Roman Republic and the Kingdom of Syracuse in 214 BC. Um, and the Romans at this time are a little distracted. They, okay. they are in the middle of fighting the Second Punic War with Carthage. Um, so they're busy elsewhere, but they feel like this, you know, is a priority because they don't want people siding with Carthage while they're trying to fight Carthage. Makes sense. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and... and like the second, let's be clear, the second Punic War just started here. Just started okay. in 218. It's going to go all the way until 201. So It's a long time. It yeah. just started. And we're in 214 and we're going to have a war. The Romans sent uh, two generals, Marcus Clodius Marcellus and Appius Clodius Pulcher. Okay. Yeah. Clodius is all around to lead the siege of the city. And uh, so Polybius says that the Romans underestimated Syracuse's defenses. Um, he mentioned several machines Archimedes designed, including improved, like, catapult weaponry, crane-like machines that could be swung around and stone-throwing. And he also mentions, 
Okay, spoiler alert, guys. Oh. Although the Romans ultimately do capture the city, they suffer considerable losses due to Archimedes specifically and his inventions. Okay. So this is what Polybius, the historian, the Roman historian, had to say. Though, again, this was many years after. Sure. Um, but Archimedes wasn't the only innovator in the conflict. Like, the Romans, you know, had their war machines. Yeah, they did. Um, so, like I was kind of saying before, Syracuse was well defended. Mm-hmm. Um, they were renowned for their walls, their fortifications. Um, so, the Romans, again, just, like, couldn't do anything for months and months. Um they kind of brought in new machines just for this specific situation of these high walls. They made something called, a, one example is the Sambuca. <laughs> so it was a floating siege tower. And oh. it was actually originally invented, invented by Heraclides of Tarentum. But it had like a huge siege tower. And at the top of the siege tower, it had like a drawbridge with grappling hooks. They could kind of lower across from the siege tower onto the city walls. Right. Um, and then, like, the theory was they would walk right over them into the... Sure. Um, theory. Theoretically, yeah. Theoretically, that was the point of these things. And they were pretty innovative, but I haven't found anything saying they actually worked. But okay. um, siege towers weren't new, though. No. They Floating had, ones They were. had, right. So they had been used since at least the 9th century BCE. Um, Roman siege tower or breaching tower... Or in the Middle Ages, a belfry. That's what a belfry is. Bats in the belfry. Now mm-hmm. I know what a belfry is. It's a siege tower. I never knew until now, so I was excited to find out. Very good. Yeah. Um, anyways, they're like specialized. Mm, like la- Almost like a protection for your ladders and stuff. Basically. So, so your troops can get up high, breach a, a wall, and, and then like... Yeah, it was like a rectangular tower with four wheels. Mm-hmm. And you make the height roughly equal to the wall that you're trying to get at, or even a little higher to allow arches to stand on top of it. Um, and then you, because they were wooden, you don't want them to set on fire. Then they would put animal hides around the outside of them. So the yeah. ladders would be inside. You could climb up and stuff. Um, so yeah, the grappling of the walls and the mobilization on water was the, definitely the innovative parts there. Um, but meh. They took forever. They weren't getting in. Why? Because Syracuse had some cool technology too. Right. Um, so they had fire from their ballistas and their onagers on their city walls. So a ballista. No, that one. A ballista. Okay. Well, then what would you say defines a ballista? It's uh, like effectively a large mechanical, uh, not not bow. Uh, what's the word? Like crossbow. Typically, it's. Uh, like the bolts that they're used on them are, are quite large, um, meant for breaking structures, not for fighting infantry. So my question was, what defines something as a ballista when I was researching this? Because I just, I couldn't have answered that question. Mm-hmm. And so what I found was that they specifically use torsion spring technology to fire the projectiles. Okay. So like, for example, in this case, they could just twist a rope up real tight for torsion, which is what they use for many of their machines to power them is torsion, like time um, twisting. Yeah. Anyways, so it is thought the earliest form of the ballista is actually... Um, was developed for Dionysus or Dionysius of Syracuse around 400 BCE that cool. he commissioned them originally for the city. And an onager is another kind of torsion-powered siege engine, and it looks kind of like a catapult 
with a bowl or like sling at the end of its throwing arm and uses a twisted rope to create torsion to fire that. Okay. So it gets its name from the kicking action of the machine that throws the stones in the air, just like the hooves of a wild ass, which is actually called an onager. Because I was like, that animal, Hmm. that's an animal name. Anyways, so these were what they had mounted all over their city walls. Okay. Um, And then how did Archimedes help with the defense here? So he improved the designs of these things. Um, You know, he was really good at physics, as we've discussed. And so his, um, much like how Napoleon, they thought he was very good at using artillery just because of his really good grasp on the angles and the physics of all of that. Sure. Similar thing to Archimedes. He could improve the accuracy and the distance of fire and all that kind of stuff. Um, he created smaller catapults that Polybius called scorpions. Okay. So that the Syracusans could target the roll, like close ships that were right by the walls. Um, so he invented crane-like machines, like like Polybius was saying. So they extended the kind of crane almost way out over the top of the city walls and swung it kind of around. Mm-hmm. And they waited till a Roman ship would get close enough and put the kind of crane on top and just release a big load of stone or lead onto the ship right. and, you know, sink it, hopefully. Um, and they targeted the siege towers with these types of, you know, weapons. Totally makes sense, yeah. Um, Archimedes also had an upgraded version two of this crane known as the Claw of Archimedes. And so not only did, you know, they have the option of raining things down on the enemy, but this was a metal claw that could be dropped with a pulley. And then it crash through the, yeah, crash through the ship's, um, decking. And then it would pull back up and again, destroy whole ships, capsize whole ships. Um, which obviously just the Romans were getting obliterated and taking huge losses. Um, Marcellus apparently had said, Archimedes uses my ships to ladle seawater into his wine cups. Um, I don't know if he actually said that because everything about Archimedes seems to be made up, but maybe he said that. Um, so like, here's a quote from Polybius in, in Histories. Um, such a great and marvelous thing does the genius of one man show itself to be when properly applied to certain matters. The Romans, at least, strong as they were both by sea and land, had every hope of capturing the town at once if one old man of Syracuse were removed. But as long as he was present, they did not venture even to attempt an attack in that fashion in which the ability of Archimedes could be used in the defense. Again, this was like 200 years after. Sure. Like, I don't know. I don't know. But um, maybe either it's true or for some reason the Romans really liked a Greek guy. Still, yeah, 200 years after a battle. Or something. Yeah, okay. That's what I'm saying. Um, so, I do want to move on to another one of Archimedes' stories that has questionable veracity because I believe this is the second most likely thing you might know about Archimedes. Um, and I take it back because it's not questionable. It, it flat out did not happen. Archimedes oh. did not use mirrors to burn Roman ships. And set them on fire. I know. That was such a good story. Did not do it. Okay. So the myth claims that by focusing the sun's rays, Archimedes' mirrors, you know, raise the temperature of the ships and set them on fire. Yeah. And this seemed kind of plausible because Archimedes did have a known interest in what's called catoptrics, which is the branch of optics dealing with the reflection of light from mirrors. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no contemporary Roman or Greek accounts that say anything about mirrors. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, the oldest record of the story dates back to the Middle Ages. Really? 
the so the problem practically is threefold. First, ships that are far enough away to safely be sitting here fiddling with mirrors, looking at them, are also too far away to be hurt by this technique. Sure. Two, ships that are made of seaworthy wood are very hard to light. Yeah. Um, so there is um, a paper published in the European Journal of Physics titled Reflections on the, quote, burning mirrors of Archimedes. Um, so they calculated that 440 mirrors that were a square meter, flat mirrors that were a square meter each, would be needed to smolder wood 50 meters away. Okay. And then even then, it was only smoldering, and they're on a sea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just, they didn't think it would be practical for the Greeks to produce and perfectly align and effectively use 440 mirrors in 214 BCE. Sure. So... Anyways, the third problem is that sunlight only carries so much energy even when it's perfectly focused. Right. So, it takes a very large effective mirror to focus the sunlight to anything useful. For example, this is an interesting thing I found out. So, there is something called the Sierra Sun Tower Solar Power Plant in California. Okay. And they have 24,000 flat mirrors spread out over 20 acres. And those 24,000 mirrors focus sunlight onto two boilers to boil water. Um, The steam then is used to turn electrical generators. But it's just, yeah, mirrors aren't that So put the boats right where those generators are, or boilers are, and bang, works. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, those mirrors can't, like, fire anything at them or disrupt them in any way because mirrors are not known to be fragile at all. No. No. No, no, no. Um... But there's this new paper that suggests Archimedes maybe use steam cannons with, like, really fiery cannonballs. And that's where the fire thing comes from. So, take this. This is one paper. Okay. This guy did a lot of research, but it's one paper. So, who knows? But here's his theory. The steam cannons could have fired hollow balls that were made of clay and filled with what's called Greek fire um, in order to set the Roman ships, you know, on fire. Um, so... If they heat the cannon barrel, they could have converted as little as 30 grams of water into enough steam to fire a cannon. Okay. Um, like a cannonball weighing 6 kilograms could have been fired at 215 kilometers per hour. Wow. Using 30 grams of water is what he's saying. It's pretty impressive. Which would have allowed the cannons to target ships that were up to 150 meters away firing at a pretty flat trajectory. Okay. Obviously, if you aimed it higher... You could shoot it farther, but yeah. it's harder to be accurate. Right. So he thinks it's possible. Um, so Greek fire was this concept that is known mm-hmm. from ancient times. Um, it's some kind of incendiary chemical mixture. We don't know exactly what it was. No. It was reported to burn underwater. I mean, clearly, I don't know, phosphorus, like... Sulfur, yeah. like there's 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 things that can burn underwater. Um, interest, who knows what it was, but it was mainly used by the Byzantine Empire. But other there's other mixtures, slightly different, but used by different um, cultures in the area. So, anyways, that could have been inside these clay cannonballs. And uh, so, some indirect evidence is that the Greek Roman historian Plutarch that we talked about a little earlier tells us of a pole shaped device 
um, that fired on the Roman soldiers. And in fact, like, who knows what the pole-shaped device was. Could have been a cannon. Um, Galen talks about a burning device used against Roman ships. Um, and all the historians agree that the words he used just cannot mean mere. None of them. Got it. Sure. So maybe it's this. Um, da Vinci has a sketch of a steam cannon that he did in the late 15th century, and he credits it to Archimedes. There's a few other historical accounts that mention a cannon device in connection with Archimedes. Okay. So, so there's some like indirect references here that we're kind of pulling threads on. We are certainly not correct. Yeah. But maybe a lot closer with this theory. Sure. Yeah. We might be looking in the right direction. Yeah. There's some a lot more evidence than there is about burning mirrors. That's for sure. Good. So how'd this war end? Well, hmm. I already told you what, you know, who won, but how did it happen? So Syracuse kind of got overconfident. They were like, it's been like two years. It's 212 at this point, for goodness sakes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the Romans receive information that Syracuse is going to still throw their annual festival to the goddess Artemis. And you know what happens during goddess festivals. Everyone's sloppy drunk. No one's paying attention. Uh, the Roman soldiers, you know, under the cover of night, sneak in, scale the walls, and, you know, take control. But only of the outer area. They have an outer city, but they have a, still had a locked inner city. Right. So, the Romans now control the outer city. They're stopping food from getting into the inner citadel, which they couldn't do before. They were trying to blockade Syracuse, but because of the defense, they couldn't get close enough to actually blockade them. They've been getting food this whole time. They were fine. Yeah. Now they're not. Now they're not getting anything. They're not yeah. fine. It's a pretty proper siege at this point. Um. Yes. And maybe eight months long is what some of the sources say. Everyone's starving. Some Iberian captain named Moerskus decides to save his own life and let the Romans in. Mm-hmm. Um. The Romans were frustrated. Sure. So when they got in, pretty much just slaughtered everyone or enslaved them and looted and sacked and Archimedes was killed by a Roman soldier. Um, as with most stories about his life, there are so many versions of how it went down, like including famous quotes he probably did not say and things he probably did not do. Um, the common threads, though, is that Roman general that Marcus Claudius Marcellus ordered he be brought to him alive because he admired his inventions and his his brain. He wanted him, yeah. you know... The idea that you could capture and take that. He was... Use it for yourself. I mean, more than that, he wrote about, even before coming to Syracuse, how much of a fan he was of Archimedes. He was just a fan, okay. is what I'm trying to say. Um, anyways, the common thread is that the Roman soldier kills him without really maybe even knowing who he just killed. Mm-hmm. Claudius is upset. He decides to take home some of Archimedes' stuff, make him feel better, and because it was really cool. So um, some of the things he takes are two planetariums, which are things Archimedes built um, that showed the motion of the sun and the moon and five planets, and that actually moved around mechanically. Very cool. So, like, very, yeah, I think that sounds cool. Um, the city of Syracuse is now Roman, which unites the whole of Sicily as a Roman province. Yeah. Um, so now the Romans can concentrate on their war with Carthage and Sicily was used as a really vital point in the rest of the war 
So without taking Syracuse, I don't know how they would have done the rest of the Punic War, but they certainly won it. Um, Syracuse was really rebuilt and it was a really important city for Rome until like the fifth century. So that was cool. Um, so just to kind of bring it back to how I keep talking about that we don't know anything about his works until recently. So given all the things I've been talking about that he did, the influence of his mathematics was really, really small. And that's because so much of it was lost or unknown. Um, so people did use the basic concepts that he came up with, like his values for pi and his surface area equations, volume equations, that type of thing. Um, but his mathematical work wasn't continued or developed. Um, method concerning mechanical theorems, which is where he wrote a lot of his important works, as well as writing this beautiful, um, kind of plea that people should take his work and, and it, you know, it should enable others to make new discoveries. That, that was one of the things that was actually lost until very recently. Um, even those that weren't lost though were unknown until the eighth and ninth centuries in the Arab world and 16th and 17th centuries in the Western world. It's crazy. Um, so and even though most of his work is undiscovered, the stuff that was around, you already heard me talk about influenced all kinds of famous scientists like Kepler, Galileo, you heard Da Vinci, Descartes, Fermat, like just so many of them. Right. Um, so I'm going to tell you finally about why we didn't know anything about his work. <laughs> Please do. So in, I've, I've learned this new word that's pretty amusing to me, to okay. be honest, and it's called a palimpsest. Okay. It's just fun to say a palimpsest. It is. So in te- textual studies, this is, you know, the study of ancient texts and stuff. Okay. Palimpsest is a manuscript page where the original text has been scraped or washed off and then reused for another document. Okay. Okay. So Archimedes wrote a lot of his proofs as letters in Greek addressed to his peers and such. Okay. Um, including those people that were scholars at Alexandria that he was in touch with. That's why this is important. So then these letters were compiled into a comprehensive text by a man called Isidorus of Miletus. Okay. And Isidorus is cool because he was the architect of the Hagia Sophia. Oh. One of the two architects. Very cool. Um, So he compiled these letters sometime around 530 CE. Oh, wow. In the city of Constantinople, which was the Byzantine Greek capital city. But again, uh, like 700 years after oh, yes. his death. Yeah, okay. Yes. Um, and then, again, nothing happens. No one reads them. No one does anything. So, then a copy of Isidorus's Archimedes' work was made around 950 by some anonymous guy. Who knows? Again, in the Byzantine Empire. Then the study of Archimedes really flourishes in Constantinople, um, especially in a school founded by a mathematician, engineer, and former Greek Orthodox archbishop called Leo the Geometer. His name is obviously appropriate. He must be good at shapes. You would assume. Yeah. You would have to assume. So this is, you know, how his works are kind of rediscovered in the Arab world. Okay. Okay. So this medieval Byzantine manuscript then travels from Constantinople to Jerusalem. Okay. Probably after the Crusades sacked 
Byzantine Constantinople in 1204. Right. In 1229 in Jerusalem, they unwrapped the Archimedes stuff and then they scraped and washed all the text off of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then um, there was some other works bound together with that. Anyways, okay. in this same palimpsest. So the leaves get folded in half and rebound and reused for a Christian liturgical text. Okay. Mm. So some monk writes on it. Um, the palimpsest remains near Jerusalem until sometime in the 1500s um, at a Greek Orthodox monastery. Sometime then before 1840, who knows when, this mm-hmm. is this is very vague, this is all we got. This palimpsest is then brought back by the Greek, Greek Orthodox um, Church of Jerusalem to Constant- the library in Constantinople. Okay, so it's made a pretty big round trip here, basically. Yeah, we're back to Constantinople. And then a biblical scholar with, I don't really need to include his name, but I wanted to because it's really, it's a great name. Um, Constantine von Tischendorf. Hmm. Good name. Constantine von Tischendorf visits Constantinople in the 1840s. And he notices the Greek, the Greek mathematics on, like, on the pages. I guess there's enough, like, just, like, visible to the naked eye. Sure. He notices them and he thinks this is something interesting and he removes a leaf of it. I don't know how you can just do this, whatever. These days, that's at the Cambridge University Library, by the way. That one leaf. Yeah. Um, and so in 1899, this leaf is um, included in a catalog of library's manuscripts and so like the transcription of it. Okay. And Johann Heiberg, the world's authority on Archimedes, just knows enough about Archimedes to be like, this is my Archimedes. I know it is. Okay. So he travels to Constantinople. And in 1906, he confirms that these are the works by Archimedes that were thought to be lost to history. Right. Okay. So then, Heiberg was allowed by the Greek Orthodox Church to take pictures of the pages he made transcriptions and he published them between 1910 and 1915 as the complete works of Archimedes um then it was translated to English okay and so before that no one really knew anything about the like mathematicians didn't know anything about Archimedes physicists historians can you imagine no yeah and so sometime between 1923 and 1930, some guy, Marie-Louis Serrault, I have no idea how you say his name, gets the palimpsest. He was a, quote, businessman and traveler to the Orient who lived in Paris. Oh. He claimed to have bought it from a monk. Okay. Who, of course, wouldn't have had the authority to sell it. Of course not. But, okay. But even if he did, he has no receipt, he has no documentation, he has nothing. Yeah. He just shows up with it. Yeah. And then nothing. Again, he dies in 1956. In 1970, his daughter tries to start selling it. Okay. Or starts trying to sell it, should I say. And obviously with no receipt, <laughs> no Exactly, with yeah. no documentation. Impossible. She cannot sell it privately. She gives it to Christie's auction house to sell at a public auction. Really? But, you know, now it's public. Mm-hmm. And so the ownership is immediately contested 
in a federal court in New York, Greek Orthodox versus of Jerusalem versus Christie's. Mm-hmm. Um, the Greek church says it had been stolen from its library in Constantinople in the 20s during extreme persecution. So I don't know if you know what was going on in Turkey in the 1920s to the Greek community, but there was a genocide there after World War I of the Greek population in Turkey, the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, didn't like them Did a genocide. So, shockingly, their valuables, this has never happened before, were then plundered. Yeah. Um, And they were saying that maybe they should have them back. But, of course, the judge was like, nah, I don't know the actual legal arguments. It just seems wrong, but law's law, I guess. Um, $2 million it sells for. Wow. To an anonymous American buyer. Okay. The lawyer representing this anonymous buyer says he was a private American who worked in the high-tech industry, and it's not Bill Gates. I guess he was tired of answering that question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, we've eliminated one. Maybe. (laughs) So let's go through the remainder of them. If you were Bill Gates and you wanted to be anonymous, you're just like, alert, it's not Bill Gates. I mean, I don't know. I guess so. Um, So then it goes to the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. Um, Lots of imaging studies, conservation efforts. You see this Ciro guy was um, storing it in his cellar, and it was moldy. And it was yucky. And in addition to the mold, sometime after it disappeared from the Constantinople Library, a forger added copies of medieval evangelical portraits on gold leaf onto four of the pages to try to increase its sales value, um, which damaged text to the point that they thought it was permanently ruined. Right. But in May 2005, um, highly focused x-rays produced at what's called the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, obviously in California, at Stanford, Mm -hmm. um, where they used those to start, like, deciphering the pages that were under the gold leaf and some of the other damaged areas. They were using this x-ray technology and different kind of lights. So this is a 174-page text. Um, And I don't know much about physics, but I feel like you might enjoy this description. So this is what they were doing. Um, Synchrotron light, what they needed to use. It's created when electrons traveling near the speed of light take a curved path around a storage ring, emitting electromagnetic light in X-ray through infrared wavelengths. The resulting light beam has characteristics that make it ideal for revealing the intricate architecture and utility of many kinds of matter. I don't know what any of that means, but that's I mean, what they did. I can't put all those words together in my mind, but what I'm assuming this means is that the they're using a, a you know a special type of light that uh, basically is going to start showing the structure of the original printing on the paper, like the actual marking on the paper, and then uh, instead of what's actually you know visibly on the surface. So, not only did they find these works by Archimedes. But through other imaging studies, they were able to find, like they also did um, something called principal component analysis to the like red, green, and blue color bands, um, multiple different light studies anyway. So they were able to discover um, the trees on the equilibrium of planes, on spirals, on measurement of a circle, on the sphere and cylinder, on floating bodies, uh, the method of mechanical theorems, which is that biggest work of Archimedes, and the pamphlet Pam Palimpsest <laughs> contains the only known copy of this ever in the world. 
Very cool. Um, the Ostomachion. Ostomachion? Um, a speech by Hyperides, an Athenian politician from the 4th century BCE, called Against Dionysus. I don't know what he did. <laughs> I don't know, but okay. But his speech against Dionysus is forever immortalized. Um, a 9,000-word commentary on Aristotle's, Aristotle's categories by a dude named Porphyry. But I like Alexander of Aphrodisias better. Okay. He could be called either. You can choose. Sure. Um, yeah, so it wasn't even just... Archimedes, there's some cool stuff about Aristotle and speeches and all this stuff in this palimpsest, which is my new favorite word to try to say. It's very cool. It's a good word. Palimpsest. Um, but that's, that's, yeah, that's it. That's my, uh, that's all I, all I know because there's not much to know. Uh, didn't actually live a lot out this time. Uh, yeah, that Included seems almost everything I could find. Pretty complete workings of, of Archimedes in this case. Palimpsest. Um, I think the next episode will not be the Plenty of the Elder Game show, quiz show. Okay. Quiz show. But I do want you to all stay tuned for the Plenty of the Elder quiz show, because I believe it will be the episode after that. That's me speaking optimistically. Yes. Um, But I'm excited by it, and you should be too. That's right. Next episode will probably be something about words. I don't know. Words or things. Etymology of sayings. Meanings. Things that happened in the past. Yeah, things yeah. that might happen in the future. Okay. One of those things. Yeah, sure. I guarantee it. Or things are happening now. Past, mm-hmm. present. I guess sometimes I talk about current things. Okay. Sometimes. Fair enough. So once again, thank you so much for listening to Teach Me Something. Um, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. <laughs> <laughs>